What is up, Thrive Tribe? Welcome back to the Thrive University podcast. I am your host and Chief Energy Officer, Jeremy Abramson. And ladies and gentlemen, I am beyond excited for today's conversation with the one and only Dr. Stephanie Estima. And I have been trying to get this woman on the podcast for quite some time because she is an absolutely brilliant thought leader in multiple areas, brain health, hormones, women's health. And this conversation, we dive deep into the differences between the male brain and the female brain. We talk a lot about hormones. We talk a lot about the side effects of things like birth control and contraceptives. So I promise you, you're going to get massive value from this conversation and you're going to learn a lot. So get your pen and paper ready, fam. This is going to be a special one. Enjoy this conversation with myself and the one and only Dr. Stephanie Estima. What is up, Thrive Tribe? I am so excited for today's show with the only, the one and only Dr. Stephanie Estima. And Dr. Stephanie is a doctor of chiropractic with a special interest in metabolism, body composition, functional neurology, and female physiology. She's been featured on Thrive Global, The Huffington Post, and has over three and a half million article reads on medium.com and has helped thousands of women lose weight, regulate hormones, and get off medications with her signature program, The Estima Diet. And you can hear her on her podcast, which is Better with Dr. Stephanie, and we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. And Dr. Stephanie is changing the conversation around health, fitness, sex, intimacy, longevity, parenting, mindset, and pursuing excellence. And her life's passion and mission is blending modern science with ancient wisdom to empower women's health and healing. Dr. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, that's quite the intro you have. So um, one of the things that really intrigued me uh, when I when I first got exposed to you through Jim Quick's podcast was when you were speaking about the difference between the male brain and the female brain, and I don't think most of the most people listening know about these things. And I was wondering if we could start off there talking about some of the differences between my brain and your brain. Sure. Yeah. Um, Jim is is a dear friend, and we actually I think the podcast that you're referring to who we actually did it live in my in my clinic uh which at the time when I when I was running a clinic so what we were talking about um that evening was that there are differences in uh, the development uh between males and females and um how there's difference differences in uh, certain processes. So for example, um, if you've ever, you know, if anybody uh, who's listening has ever had children, you may notice if you have, especially if you have a girl and a boy, you may notice that the uh, girl's acquisition of language is usually faster uh, than the males. Of course, that tends to even out, but she's a quicker, uh, you know, she's, she's more like a, a bit of a ninja in terms of uh, vocabulary acquisition and usage. She's also very good at looking to uh, faces to read emotions. So she might look to, you know, mom or dad or, you know, caregiver uh, to see whether or not there's an approving look, a disapproving look. And she's much more likely to check in with her caregivers to figure out whether or not she's doing something right or wrong than the boy who's a bit more of a natural uh, risk taker, uh, and who may not necessarily check back in with mom or dad before they go darting out into the street or whatever. Uh, and as a as a mother of two boys, I can tell you that that's uh, absolutely true as well. My children have absolutely no fear, and it's it's in some ways it's been like I have to make sure that like these are the consequences when you run after a soccer ball and you don't look across the street and there's a car coming, like you know. But it doesn't seem to you know sort of process with them. And what I was talking about on that particular podcast as well is the difference in the dopamine and serotonin uh, systems between men and women. So in grown adults, uh, and when I say men and women, of course, I'm referring to chromosomal sex. Um, 
So an XX and an XY. Um, so when we talk about, um, well, before we even kind of talk about the dimorphisms or the sexual dimorphisms, um, one of the things that um, uh, I think is worth noting is just talking about what dopamine does and what serotonin does. So dopamine and serotonin, of course, are neurotransmitters. Um, dopamine is often uh, known for, you know, the pursuit, right? It's like the chase, it's the to-do list, it's the uh, the pursuit of pleasure, uh, things like that. And serotonin has um, become famous. It's the happy hormone. So people will understand serotonin to be the feeling content and feeling, uh, you know, settled into your body. When we eat, a, you know, a meal that is very satisfying, of course, we produce serotonin in the gut, but there's also uh, neurotransmitters from the uh, raphe nucleus in the brain that also produce serotonin as well. So it's a bit of a misnomer to say um, that all your serotonin, like, you know, we've probably all heard at this point, like 90% of serotonin lives in your gut. It's a little bit of a misnomer uh, because there is a gut brain axis and it's the brain that's driving that process. So um, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine when I hear people say 90% of the, no, it's yes, that is very, that is true, but it's not, it's not the entire picture. So when you have an understanding of dopamine and serotonin, uh, the other thing that um, I think is important to note is that dopamine is more of an internal job. So uh, you can be very internally motivated. So you may set out you know, tasks for the day or tasks for the month or the quarter or whatever it is. And men tend to be more internally motivated, meaning that they may have that... Um, you know, that dopamine, they, they may have that to-do list. They may have that things I need to get done. And they actually don't need a lot of external um, coaching or prodding in order to get that done. Like they know they have to do it. And for the most part, you know, assuming that we're not talking about egregious inflammation and chronic low-grade stress and all these other things that can kind of mess up uh, with dopamine signaling, um, they'll, they'll be able to go and get it done. Whereas women we still have access to that dopamine. So we still uh, have to-do lists. We still, uh, you know, uh, especially a lot of type A personalities like myself, we tend to be very driven by success and accolades, et cetera. But we're a little different in that we need more external um, uh, mode. We need more external stimulation in order to drive that. And what I mean by that is that, you know, a guy, you know, we always hear these like, you know, men have like manholes or bat cave, not bat caves, but man caves, man caves, where right. they go and they do their thing and then they emerge, you know, several hours later. Women don't really work that well in isolation. So we tend to be more communal. Um, so we need to have more positive interactions uh, between our peers. Uh, what, you know, if it's an employer situation, like with, you know, with our employees or if we're an employee with our employers, uh, we need to have more interaction with our partners. We need to hear some of these feedback mechanisms in to, to drive our dopamine and to drive our serotonin. So serotonin is more of an external, uh, we get like, for example, you know, I go to the clinic, you know, when I had a clinic, um, and I would hear every day, doc, you've changed my life. You've changed my, you know, my view on nutrition, you've, you, you know, my chronic back pain. And that for me is an external reward. So someone is outside myself telling me that I'm doing something good. And of course, what that's going to do is it's going to drive up my dopamine to say, oh, well, I, I'm going to just do this again tomorrow. Like I'll come back to you know, come back to the clinic tomorrow and do it all over right. again. Whereas a guy doesn't necessarily need that. And I also observe this as a clinician with my patients where if I had a male patient, for example, that had, you know, let's just upper body strength, there was an up, you know, a deficit in his upper body strength. I would say, listen, we need to increase your shoulder mobility or whatever it was that we were working on. And I'm going to see, these are the things I need you to do. And I'm going to see you in a month. And I didn't really need to check up on him that much. I knew that in a month when I saw him again, he would say, yeah, I do that like four times a week, just like you said. And this is like, and we would do the test and he would have improved. Whereas my female patients, I definitely needed to check in with them a little bit more to give them more encouragement along the way. So this is one of the subtle differences between men and women. And this is you know, useful information if you are in a relationship uh, with the opposite sex, right? Because if you are a male, if you're in a heterosexual relationship and you're a male, you also you want to be cognizant of your woman is not needy, right? She's not. She's not. Um, there's nothing. She's different from you in that she needs more of this external positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. um, 
If you are an employer, for example, and you have females who are your employees, of course, it's the same thing. You know that you know they are going to need more coaching. They're going to need more inc- positive encouragement along the way so that they continue to drive up that dopamine that, that, to continue that chase. And I think so often... You know, we live in very much a male-dominated, very much a you know patriarchal society, and I think that 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 subtlety in terms of how we interact with our females has been lost. In that we think, well, I'm a, you know if I'm a you know I'm assuming like let's pretend I'm a guy, I'm a guy, you know, like I can just get her done, like I can just punch it out, like why can't everybody else just be like me? Well, mm-hmm. nobody, not everybody can be like you because not everybody has the same physiology as you, and we even you know I'll we can get into this, I'm sure, but even just the term male and the term female are almost, you know, other than, you know, uh, genital, uh, you know, other than your chromosomal sex are almost meaningless. Like there's women, there's black women, there's Asian women, there's women who are tall, short, wide, you know, all these different types, you know, red hair, blue eyes, like all these different, uh, genetic and epigenetic expressions. So we want to be very careful, uh, also about painting too broad of a stroke, but generally I would say that those are some of the fundamental differences from a neurological perspective, um, in terms of brain differences between men and women, there are others. Um, but I would say that, 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 that is a, that's been most useful for me as a, uh, as a, as a boss, uh, knowing when I have female, uh, you know, when my employees are female, like to know how to coach and encourage them. And it's also been, you know, important in my relationship. So I'm in a heterosexual relationship with my partner and, and he, I've also, Taught, showed him this science as well. So we also know how to dance around each other's physiology a little bit better. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for thanks for diving deep into that. And I'm curious, so you talked about uh, the women uh, kind of a deeper need for this external validation or positive reinforcement. Is that coming from the fact that they inherently produce less serotonin than men? Yes. Yes. Thank you. So I didn't mention that. Um, and I, I want to be careful here as well, because there's also, I mean, we're talking about neurology, but there's also cultural layering on top of this as well. Right. So when we think about, uh, the serotonin levels, as you mentioned, uh, women have about 50% less, uh, capacity to produce serotonin than our male counterparts do. So that's why I, you know, written an article went viral and, you know, the, the title of the article was a bit cheeky, but it was like why women need twice as much sex as, as men. And that's because, you know, of course, when you're thinking about sex, this is one of the most, you know, vulnerable, open times um, in, uh, in your existence. And I think that, you know, having that reinforcement, having that loving, nourishing, caring reinforcement helps to drive up her serotonin levels, which in turn will drive up her dopamine levels. But I also do want to comment and say that I think that women and I can't speak for all cultures, I can speak for sort of the Western culture that I've grown up in. Uh, Generally, women are very much encouraged um, to be caregivers, uh, to constantly be looking outside ourselves for validation. Like you are only going to be pretty when you own this certain mascara, or you're only going to be worthy when you own this bag or this pair of shoes or whatever. Um, So I think that there's also a cultural layering on top of that as well, where inherently as women, we are already taught from a very young age. Like when we see little girls, we say, oh, you're so pretty, you know, but when we see little boys, we say, oh, you're so smart. You're so strong, you know? So there's, there's already this like uh, sexual appropriation in terms of skills and what's important for women and men. So I think a lot of women, myself included, uh, grew up looking already for external validation. It's like, am I good enough now? Am I smart enough now? Am I pretty enough now? Am I worthy enough now? Um, so we also want to be, uh, it's it's not just a neurological drive, although there are, of course, there are differences as we just discussed between differences in serotonin uh, between the two sexes, but we also want to think about how this can culturally also be uh, a, a part of that route as well. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And if there's men listening right now, um, I think a couple of things that we can do, as you mentioned, Doc, are just remember that oftentimes just little signs of physical affection can go a long way. Words of affirmation, of appreciation can also go a long way. And I heard you mention kind of this sexist approach, uh, the way that 
kind of society, even a lot of studies when we're talking about science, like are done on men. So it's very hard to kind of have a lot of data collected on women. And I also saw on your website that you, uh, you, you said morning routines are mm-hmm. sexist. Yes. Am I, am I right? Or did no, you're am, correct. <laughs> yes. tell, tell, tell us why morning routines are sexist. Sure. Uh, I also will say as well, I can't remember who, this is a business um, uh, principle. I'm going to actually um, shout out Alex Sharfin because I first heard it from him, uh, who was a business coach of mine many years ago. And he often talked about, you know, to be a profound leader, you always want to give five positive comments to every one negative comment, right? So he was talking about all of his like male, female, everything in between. Um, I think that that's most applicable as well to our women. So you always want to be thinking about how can I, as you said, how can I have all these small little like great job on this or, oh my gosh, I just like, I love how you're looking today or just love the effort that you put into tonight's meal or whatever. So thinking about small little ways that you can be um, encouraging uh, your partner to do the things that she loves. Um, In terms of morning routines, yes, uh, as a part of my, it was a chapter in my book um, called The Betty Body. Uh, I believe it was chapter six. Uh, And in it, I start off talking about how morning routines are sexist. And the reason why that is, is again, kind of back to this um, patriarchal construct. Often when we think about morning routines, we think about you know, you wake up at a, you know, some early time, like before everyone else wakes up, you wake up at four or five in the morning, and then you go and you have this beautiful tea that you have imported from Japan and you make your special tea. And then you sit and you journal, and then you write all the things that you want to do that day. And then after that, you go and you do a workout. And then after that, you know, you go read, you know, 10 pages in a book and then you ideate and then you write down 10 ideas. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I don't know. Just like, you have my morning routine down to a T. Okay. But uh, okay. So if that works for you, male or female, that's amazing. When you have children, particularly if you are a single mother, you know that there is no way that that's happening. My morning routine for years when my children were younger was my little two-year-old kind of toddling into my, you know, room, waking me up. It's like, mommy, you know, time for a feed, right? So like that was my morning routine. And because I was often up with them overnight, like whether it was breastfeeding or they had a, you know, runny nose or nightmares or, you know, my sleep was really disrupted. So I didn't have a morning routine for, I mean, my children now are almost 11 and almost nine. So now, you know, they have a good sleep schedule there. You know, we have a, I have a morning routine now, but from when my children were born, you know, easily up until my oldest was eight, like just a couple of years ago, I had no morning routine, but I would look at, you know, men who were talking about morning routines. And I was like, gosh, like what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I wake up at four? Why can't I ideate? Why can't I do an hour workout? And part of that is because I had a different role at that time. And so I I talk about this idea that your morning routine will change as a woman, you know, especially if you've had children to not blame yourself because so many women, this is like, this is, I don't know. I don't want to say it's baked into our DNA, but it maybe there's a, there's some cultural uh, like conditioning here, but we always blame ourselves. We can't wake up at three 30 and have the special tea and do the year, you know, do the hour workout and then ideate and read a chapter a day. Like, you know, that's for a single woman, you know, a single mother, that's like an almost impossibility. And I would say even a woman who's in a relationship, um, you know, the guy who's able to do that, if he has children, it's either a nanny who's taking care of those children in the morning or it's, or it's the mother. So we want to be um, sensitive when we talk about morning routines and like morning routines, like master your morning routine, master your life. If you don't have a morning routine, you don't win, like win the morning, win the day, like all of these sort of platitudes that I think um, can make a woman just feel like a total bomb. Like she's bombing and failing at life everywhere. When she has like a child hanging off of her, she's sleep deprived. She's still recovering from pregnancy. Like we have to be a little gentler with our women and find safety nets for them to find space where they can take a, take a nap. Maybe, you know, for a long time, my morning routine was sleeping in. Like I got a 15 minute, like baby uh-huh. went down for a nap. I, that was my, like, I was like, okay, uh-huh. I'm going to sleep with my baby. Um, so that, that's why I talk about this idea that morning routines are sexist because I have so many women that are like, 
I don't have a morning routine. You know, like when yeah. we talk about it, it's well, like, that's fine. You don't need to have one right now. Yeah. I think, I think, and by the way, the, the morning you, the morning routine that you described actually isn't very accurate to mine, but I a hundred percent see where you're coming from. Yeah. And what I try to coach people with is just listening to yourself. Cause there's going to be days where maybe you only have 20 minutes to yourself in the morning. There's going to be days where maybe you have 45 minutes or 60 minutes. So it's really doing things that are going to move the needle for you specifically. You know, sometimes that might be a quick little Epsom salt bath or taking your dog for a walk or sleeping in whatever that looks like to you, that's going to fuel you and create more peace and clarity in your life. And I think what you're touching on now is a really interesting concept. I'm actually um, dating a single mom too. And uh, one of the things that we talk about pretty often is mom guilt. Totally. Mm -hmm. this, This like constant feeling of I'm not doing enough for my child. And I'm curious to know, like for you and your experiences, like, is that something that you consistently still go through on a day-to-day basis? And then what are some ways to potentially overcome that? Oh, a hundred percent. It's always 100% of the time. I'm always like, is this right? Did I, you know, and every mother, uh, no matter how awake you are and how much personal development um, you have, or how many books you like, I was like, I know my birth plan. I know how I'm going to raise these babies. I've read 40 books on it. Here are my cliffs notes on it. Uh, it doesn't matter how much prep you have. Your children are your greatest, uh, teachers and they just, um, and you know, I have two uh, children. They are very much my spiritual teachers. And sometimes one is more of the spiritual teacher than the other. (laughs) And so they are just like mirrors. They will just hold up all the trauma, all the stuff that you thought you were past right up to your face. Uh, and they will continue to push that button until, um, until you do your own healing. So, uh, I would say that, um, yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. I have mom guilt, uh, all the time. Um, we, um, we were talking in the pre-chat, I was telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm up in Toronto and, um, you know, schools are just, you know, at the time of this recording, schools are just starting up again and, uh, still mask mandates and all of that. And without getting into the politics, like I just felt like for my children, uh, being in a mask eight hours a day was just not the right choice for them. Um, uh, we, you know, we go to the grocery store and I put masks on them and like, I'm getting yelled at by like the, you know, like the grocery people like, put your children's mask on. And they're like, they're throwing it at like, they don't, they, they won't wear them. So we decided to homeschool them. So that I, that was, you know, I decided I was going to cut cut back on my work a little bit so that I could homeschool these children because that's what I felt like they needed. And of course, you know, being a totally unqualified teacher, teaching now two children, you, I, I would say that in the last year that was, you know, amplified even more for them. So I was like, Oh my God, I got to make sure that they get the curriculum and then the skill set and this and that. And, um, I think it's just part of being a mother. I think that the the best thing that you can do for your children, this is just something that I've come to peace with as a, you know, I've mentioned already, I'm kind of an overachiever and a type A personality is you have to sometimes just let that stuff go. You just have to like, it's not going to be perfect. We're all screwing up our kids in some way. Uh, your children are going to talk about you to a therapist at some point on a couch when they're older. Um, and you're just doing the best that you can with the tools that you, that you have at the time. Even from, you know, my babies are, as I mentioned, almost 11, almost nine, even just the 11 years that my that I've been a mother, the amount of growth that I, you know, my patience, my, uh, my capacity for forgiveness, uh, these things have all amplified because of my children. And it's still an ongoing process in the same way that personal development, you're never really done, right. In the same way, you're never really done fitness. You're never like, yeah, I, I ran for a year. I'm probably, I'm, I'm good for the rest of my life now. Like the, it, like parenting is an ongoing process. It's an ongoing, uh, quest for self-discovery. So in terms of getting over it uh, or how we can get over the mom guilt, I would say, um, I think at their core, and I, I truly believe this, I think that children want to see their parents happy. They want to see their moms happy. So doing the personal work, the ugly cry work, you know, like the stuff where you are releasing the trauma from your system in whatever way that, you know, might be breath work. It might be psychedelics. It might be talk therapy. It might be meditation. There are many different modalities, but, um, as long as you continue to, to work on you in the capacity that you have for where you are in your life, you know, your children are just going to benefit from that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, 
Since you mentioned psychedelics, this is an area of interest for me. I actually last month was in Jamaica leading a psilocybin wellness retreat. And um, I've been a big advocate for microdosing psilocybin, <clears throat> excuse me, and have implemented that with some of my clients. And actually, Doc, my dad was a neurologist for 40 years. So <clears throat> it's funny to see all the synchronicities, you know, with your work and all the overlap and stuff like that. Um, curious to know if you're if you're open to sharing, you know, the impact of maybe psychedelics on your life and any of the profound experiences that you've had. Yeah. I've talked about this on, on my podcast, um, as well. I've been to, um, several sessions, uh, psychedelics and, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, MDMA, uh, to help with my own traumas. You know, we all, as I mentioned, like we're all screwing up our kids, you know, my parents screwed me up in their ways too. Uh, you know, and I'm, you know, on the other side of it, I can say that you know there's a lot of forgiveness and empathy that I have for my parents because they were just doing what they could. Um, so for me, uh, MDMA uh, was what I first started off with. Uh, I've done maybe four or five sessions um, and um, very difficult work, um, like it, very intense work. So, I mean, I think that First, you need to, you know, the type of intervention that I had was very similar to what they're, what they have, what they're studying now with maps. Um, so there's like sitters and it's like, there's this, there's an, you know, set and setting, there's an intention to it. And then there's, of course, the integration that comes afterwards. Uh, a lot of times I think people will go into, you know, ceremonies or they'll, um, they'll, you know, whatever. And then there's, um, there's no, there's no intention around it, or there's no follow-up work. So you always sort of get this little gap. You always sort of get this little window in what could, in, in terms of what could be um, during the session. But then if you don't sort of continue after the session, after the drugs were off and you come back to, you know, uh, who you are um, to continue to, you know, to document your changes and to notice some of the shifts, I think that's, that's really important. So for me, uh, it's been very, uh, very useful in, in terms of finding forgiveness um, for my parents and for my upbringing, some of the things that happened, um, when I was growing up. And I think it's also helped me become a better parent because I think that when, um, particularly with the, with the, uh, integration afterwards. So with the, for me, what's been very helpful is meditation. Um, and I found that meditation or just sinking into my body, because I like to stay in my brain. That's one of my survival strategies is I like, I divorce myself from my body and I just stay above my throat. I'm just in my brain running algorithms. Um, so meditation has really helped me uh, sink into my body. And what I found in terms of just being a parent is it's just given me like a little bit of space between the time where I want to snap on my kids because they're driving me up the wall and me actually finding my, my frontal lobe actually coming online and saying, actually, like, you don't need to scream. Like, this is not, you know, so I found that it's given me, um, it's made me a better parent in that my reactions have really come down. Um, I'm able to sort of remove myself, the emotionality, which can be very primitive and very quick, um, still happens, but I my frontal lobe, if you will, just comes online a little bit, uh, a little bit faster, or I'm able to wait <laughs> before I react. So that's, that's really been the biggest, um, two things for me. And, um, I'm, I'm guessing that this podcast, a lot of the, the content that you talk about is like biohacking and longevity and, you know, anti-aging and how we can live better lives. And I think that that's one of the best things that you can do. Like it's actually Ir irrelevant to live a long life if you're miserable and you're angry and you're bitter and resent and resentful. I think it's like a special form of torture to like live until 120. Right. Between lifespan and health span, like correct. Yes, lifespans have extended and gotten longer, you know, the last couple of decades, but health spans have declined. You know, most people are spending their last couple of decades in nursing homes on a bunch of medications, isolated. And that's not an ideal part of this human experience, especially at the last part of your life, you know, right. those should be enjoyable, peaceful, spent with your family and loved ones. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious to know, you know, with the advocacy that you share in your different experiences with MDMA and potentially psilocybin as well, 
Have you received any sort of backlash, you know, in the medical field? Um, I know you kind of operate in your own private practice and stuff like that. Um, but have you received any negative backlash or anything like that? No, actually, uh, I definitely thought that people were going to call me a druggie because I was actually really nervous about it as well. Cause I'm, I'm like the super goody two shoes, like hasn't, you know, never done any, you know, any hard drug, you know, considered hard, like this is a class one or what, what is it called? It's a, um, Schedule one. Schedule one. Thank you. Schedule one. Yeah. That's what I was like. Oh my gosh. Like, but it's actually been met with a lot of curiosity. So I've had a lot of people private messaging me or other, uh, you know, colleagues that are like, tell me a little bit more. Like, what are you talking? Like they're looking, they're, they're curious. And I think that, um, this is really, uh, uh, and a testament to where the research is, is going. Cause we had this big like war on drugs in the eighties and like shut her down, like shut down all the psychedelic research fifties and sixties. And now we're sort of seeing a resurgence of some of the positive aspects of things like MDMA and of course, psilocybin, which I have, I have also um, uh, had some psilocybin um, uh, journeys as well. Uh, much gentler, I'll say like for my constitution, it's much like the MDMA, like sort of like wrecks me for a couple, like a couple, I need like three to four days of recovery, um, oh, wow. after it. And it's just my own chemistry. Like, you know, I just have a hard time sleeping. There's a lot of stuff that's still coming out for like, just lots of like crying and shaking and all that. The, the stuff that happens in the session I have found with MDMA, just my particular constitution, it just, it continues, uh, for several days afterwards, but the psilocybin has been, it's much gentler for me. Um, but I, I will say that it's interesting to see the acceptance now of psychedelics, um, because we're actually producing a lot of research, like the mat, you know, they're, they, they're, um, I believe right now they're in phase three of their trials at MAPS. And what they're finding, of course, is things like post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which you make you can argue is going to happen. At the, you know, this pandemic has really caused a lot of mental havoc and upheaval uh, for many people. Um, but post-traumatic, like specifically, I know they've looked at vets uh, from the war and they've looked at uh, rape victims and they've looked at people who have not been able to move past uh, whether it's like a, 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 a very traumatic event in their life, they've sort of been stuck in this loop, uh, has really helped with their anxiety, helped with their sleep, helped with some of the neurological signs and symptoms. So uh, very interested to see um, kind of what comes from that. But I haven't really had a lot of backlash. There's been more curiosity um, more than anything. And um, no one's called me a druggie yet. So, What is up, Thrive Tribe? I'm sorry to interrupt today's show, but I got something special for you. I've gotten so many messages, emails, DMs asking for the supplements and the products that I personally use every single day. So what I did, I put a list together of all of the companies that I really fuck with. These are the companies that are not only the highest quality ingredients and sourcing, but I've also connected with their founders and built relationships to make sure that my mission aligns with theirs. And I promise you that these brands that I work with, that I use, are top notch and you can get hooked up with discounts to all of them. So check out the link in the show notes, whether you want fair trade organic coffee from Purity, whether you want high quality micro doses from Schedule 35 and a whole host of other companies. So check out the link in the show notes and you will have access to all of that magic. Now let's get back to the show. Oh, that's amazing. You're, you're clearly not on TikTok because uh, TikTok, you get some interesting comments. Um, no, I'm not on TikTok. No. Uh, we got to get you on there because I, I encouraged Ben and I like coached him a little mm -hmm. on TikTok because he wasn't doing anything. And like after two or three months, he has like 125,000 followers. Wow. I was on yeah. it for a little bit. I was doing some of the TikTok dances. Like I have like I did three TikTok dances and I was like, this is too much for me. It's like too much with, I actually don't enjoy social media. Um, yeah. I need, we, I need like my thinking time to, yeah. I find when I'm, when I'm interacting a lot with Instagram, interacting a lot in these platforms, it affects, it, it affects my mental health. So I find. Oh, I, for sure. Yeah. Well, you could probably repurpose a lot of stuff, you know, it, yes. you don't have to, you don't have to dive deep into these trends or anything, but we can talk about that later. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I actually, uh, just to finish off that point, I actually recently partnered with an amazing company based in Toronto. 
um, that has incredible like micro doses and different uh, type formulations. Um, so can link you up with them. They're, they're pretty amazing with what they're doing. It's called schedule 35. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the hormones with women in particular, because this is something that I've never really touched on in a deep way on this show. And you're like the world's expert on this topic. And I'm so grateful to have you here. Um, I'm curious to know uh, about the side effects of birth control. And I don't know if this is something you've studied a lot, uh, but a lot of my female friends, like they talk very, they talk about like how it really makes them feel like shit, lowers their sex drive, their mood, all of these things. And I'm wondering like, if you've done any research, if you have any anecdotal stories about that. Yeah. There's uh, several podcasts that I've done, uh, with, uh, a lot of, you know, world experts as well on the, uh, birth control pill and some of the effects that it has. Um, so I'm happy to send you, um, there. I would say that, um, I've done a lot of research on the birth control pill and I want to just preface what I'm going to say with like, there's no judgment here, right? So we're like, what, if you choose to go on the birth control pill after you have adequately looked at the possible side effects and you are okay with them, then all the more power to you. Um, it's where I, where I sort of get like an angry tick is where I have women that'll come to me after decades of being on the birth control pill and they're having, you know, they come off it because often, oftentimes they'll come off it in their thirties because they're now they're looking to start a family and then they're having trouble just getting their period. Um, but it's because they've been very often, they've been put on the pill from when they were 15, 16 for like bad acne or just heavy periods. And then they've essentially matured with this chemical in their system. So you've you know, effectively cut off the brain uh, ovarian, like the, the way that the brain and the ovaries talk to each other. So there's an axis called the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis or HPO. Uh, a lot of people have heard of HPA, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal. There's many axes in the body, uh, but for women, we have this HPO axis. So you've essentially castrated this um, this connection. And the number one thing I always hear is no one told me this. No one told me that this would be, why didn't my primary talk to me about this? So this is, I'm, I'm saying this at the, at the outset, because I don't care whether you, or not you take it, but you have to understand what some of the risks are if you do. And, you know, to your point, you said a lot of women said that they make them, you know, ironically, you know, like the pill was, uh, you know, it's, just, it's a contraceptive. It's supposed to prevent pregnancy. So you might think, hooray, huzzah, I can just like have all the sex that I want without any consequence. But of course, you know, libido is a really big thing that we see that's affected. Um, and the irony, of course, is that women who are on the pill often don't want to have sex as they norm, like their libido is flattened in the same, in, in, in a way that they weren't necessarily expecting. Now that, you know, may or may not be important to you, but I think that there's a couple of things that are, um, that I'll mention. So one is, um, something called your major histo, uh, compatibility complex or MHC. This is drastically changed when you're on the pill. This is basically your ability to, um, uh, you know, if you are, whether your attraction to another mate. So it's part of this is based on pheromones and um, scent. And what they've found is that and there's been countless cases of women who've been on the pill, they've met their partner. So their MHC is, is altered. They come off the pill because they want to get pregnant. And then they, of course, their MHC is all, it starts coming back to baseline and they're no longer attracted to their partner anymore. What we actually find, what we actually find is that when you are on the pill, you actually choose mates who are more genetically similar to you. So of course, in, when we think about this in terms of like a Darwinian natural selection, um, uh, paradigm, that's actually the worst thing that you want. You want to select a mate who is the most genetically dissimilar to you so that you have like the recombinant, you know, you have the recombination of, you know, the most optimal gene pool. You're not duplicating and you're not like kind of replicating bad patterns. So that's one thing. 
Um, That's fucking that. Hold on. Sorry to interrupt you. That's fucking crazy. So it's shifting. It's gross. Actually. It's like you choose genetically similar mates when you're on the pill. So that, do you think I could be misinterpreting this, but do you think that could potentially be leading like a female to be into another woman when she's not actually really into women? Potentially. I don't think it has anything to do with uh, gender selection. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to make that claim. But what we do know is that, at least in in the heterosexual data. So I, I I'm not. And if there is other data that I'm not aware of, I'd be. I'd love for anybody to send it to me. But um, in in when we're looking at a male and a female coupling, um, the taking the birth control pill will alter her selection of the mate. So she will choose, typically choose somebody who is more genetically similar to her um, than someone who is more diverse. So that doesn't mean that she's choosing or that she's going to be more attracted to women. Uh, but that means that her, she might be attract, she might misappropriate, um, you know, some of the uh, unconscious um, signals like pheromones um, as being, you know, something that is, that is good for her when in fact it's, it's not. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing that we, um, uh, that we find with the pill um, is, well, there's, there's many things, but one of the other things that I think is important for people to understand is that um, it increase, it depletes a lot of uh, vitamins. So it depletes CoQ10, it depletes uh, your B vitamins. Uh, it actually alters your lipid profile. So you, uh, to, for the worse. Um, so you will often have like your total cholesterol number, your triglycerides will be altered, your LDLC and your LDLP will change. And I think that, um, especially if we're thinking like a lot of women with polycystic ovary syndrome. So this is a, um, one of the most horm common hormonal, um, you know, derangements or problems that we see in women. Um, often the PCOS has part of its roots in uh, dysregulated insulin function. So she's usually hyperinsulinemic. Uh, there's usually too much glucose. And then the insulin glucose dance becomes a little bit wonky. And then we're starting to get when insulin goes up, then of course we start to see changes in her fertility via sex hormone binding globulin. And I can get into those nerdy details, but one of the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that a woman with PCOS already likely has altered lipid. She already has dyslipidemia. Like she already has an altered lipid, lipid profile. She's put on the pill. And then of course, now her lipid profile worsens. And usually the offering then is like, okay, well, here's a statin because we need to control your cholesterol number, your LDLC, whatever it is that they're trying to control. So I think that it's important for women to understand that if you do choose to have the pill, that you do have to be very careful. You have to be supplementing with B vitamins. You have to be supplementing with CoQ10, which is, a, is, is an integral to your mitochondrial function. Um, and then for women who are put on the pill because of this androgen dominance, because of this PCOS, uh, we want to be just very, very careful and watch her lipid profile. So, you know, at a minimum of every six months, you should be getting um, like some like a full lipid panel, uh, so that you can monitor uh, whether or not um, it's getting better or getting worse, staying the same. Wow, yeah, that's really it's crazy because it sounds like you could be a completely healthy woman, and oftentimes, like you mentioned, you're still a teenager when you start taking these pills. And you can have healthy habits and this can really just take you out of that equilibrium and cause so much distress in different areas. And like you said, you know, we're having this conversation not to like shame or judge anyone, but simply to educate and hopefully empower people to make more educated decisions because this is your body and you deserve to know what you're putting inside of it. You know what I mean? And I'm curious to know, um, I was told, I told one of my friends that I was having this conversation with you and she asked me to ask you specifically about the spiral birth control contraption, if you're familiar with that and how that would potentially impact her. So are we talking about an IUD or we're talking about just the brand? It's called the spot. It's like an oral contraception. What is, I've never heard. No, of no. It. The first thing you mentioned. It's a, it's an IUD. Yes. It's a hormonal IUD or it's a copper yes. IUD? Uh, 
Ooh, I think it is potentially copper, but it goes inside that area. Yeah, so there's two types of IUDs, so intrauterine devices. We can have copper, uh, which is more of a mechanical disruptor um, of the uterine lining, and then we have a hormone, and then there's hormonal. So they they sort of have different mechanisms. Um, I'm not familiar with the with the brand, um, you know, offhand or specifically, but I would say that whenever we talk about whenever we're talking about hormonal contraception, so a lot of people would just say, oh the pill. Well, also IUDs, right? Because we have hormonal IUDs, like the Mirena is one of the more um, uh, popular ones. Um, The copper IUD can be a good um, solution for some women. Um, Unfortunately, you just have to try it. Uh, Like some people feel really great on it, no problems. And other people just feel terrible on it. So uh, it's something that you probably should be discussing with your OB or your primary, whoever is uh, facilitating that. Um, but I don't know specifically the brand that she's, that she's talking about. It sounds like doc, there's very like, considering it's 2021, I feel like we should have better solutions for these things. Am I crazy? Well, I think that, um, I, I, I think that when we think about the pill or, or hormonal contraception, you know, it's original, you know, it sort of came up as this, like, Hey, you know, you know, we, we, it's a way for us to empower, uh, you know, our biology and it's a way for us to decide when we want to get pregnant. And it was sort of this pro feminist, uh, kind of movement. But I think now the way that we see it being, I have had, I've had, not, I've mentioned like teenagers being put on it. I've had women that I'm working with in their forties, like they're 48, 49. And of course they're in perimenopause. They're being offered the pill as a, as a sort of catch all everything solution. And I think that, um, you know, I, I would say that it's more of a, I, I would say that it's anti and I'm get, I know I'm going to get some blowback for this, but I actually think that the pill is a bit more anti-feminist than it is pro because it takes away so much of our vitality. It takes away things like our libido. It disrupt, we are taking synthetic hormones in the, um, you know, in our most fertile years for usually off-label issues. So usually for, uh, you know, heavy periods or acne, you know, and it's often not to prevent pregnancy, even though that does happen. I'm not saying that that never happens, but more, uh, at least the cases that I see, and I could, I could totally be biased in my sample set, but so many of the women that come to me have been put on it because they had irregular cycles in their teens, which is actually normal. Um, Nat Kringudis, who's a a colleague, a dear friend of mine, uh, wrote a great book on how a woman who is in her when she just starts menstruating, it's like any skill, right? Like when you just learn to ride a bike, you don't just like get it like that. So often a woman, when she starts menstruating 13, 14, whatever it is, when she gets, you know, 16, 17, 18, oftentimes she can actually appear a little PCOS-y. She can kind of look a little bit androgen dominant. And it's often then when the pill is doled out rather than looking at the root, like why this is happening, or maybe it's just a normal flux in her hormonal... Uh, constitution. So I think my, my overall comment around the pill is that, um, it's been around for a long time. There's no male equivalent. Uh, I remember when I was researching a lot with the pill, it was like, yeah, the male pill is like, you know, five years away from being, uh, done. And it's been like that for the last 40 years. Like if, if I said to, if I said to you, uh, as a, you know, as, as a doctor and said, you know what, we're going to give you this pill. Uh, you're not going to be able to get your girlfriend pregnant, but, um, your sperm count's going to decrease. Your libido is going to go down. You're probably going to get depressed when you come off of it. You're, you know, your guys, we don't know how, you know, if, if you're going to be shooting blanks, uh, you know, we, we don't, we don't know, but here you go. Would you take it? you'd be out the door before I finished that list. But as women, we're so much more, we attach ourselves to the promise and we divorce ourselves from the risks. And this is why, you know, I've I've talked about this on the podcast a lot. Uh, I think that if you decide to to take the pill for whatever reason, I don't even care what the reason, just know the risks and so that you can make a better decision for yourself. And then if you are on the pill, please get on a B vitamin. Please start taking some CoQ10. Uh, monitor your moods. Um, monitor your lipids. Do a full panel, like a cardiometabolic panel. I would be like every six months, like full lipid panel, HbA1c, fasting glucose, fasting insulin, like get all the things um, so that you have data and you can monitor it as well. Wow. So many value bumps. Oh my gosh. This was like 
I feel like for men too, it's really important for us to also understand these things because I feel like I know like for a majority of my life, I didn't really pay attention to any, you know, the cycles, the hormones, all of these things that are happening and having a huge impact on our friends, our partners, health, their brain, their mindset, their energy levels, their mood, all of these things are being impacted. And I feel like oftentimes I know I definitely lack compassion in the past, like not really understanding what was going on. on yeah, I don't think it's compassion. I just think it's understanding. Like you, you, in, in society, we were like, Oh, it's like this time of the month for her. You know, it's that. And as women, I would say that most women would feel exactly how you just expressed. Like we actually don't know about our hormones. We're not taught, you know, we get maybe in sex ed in high school where there's like a banana and a condom. Like that's, that's the extent of like sex ed. We don't actually learn, or maybe there's like a little bit about, you know, a female's reproductive cycle, but we don't actually learn about how things can go awry where we are learned to, we learn to fear our fertility. We don't learn how to optimize for it. And I think both men and women, we want to be thinking about how we can optimize for our fertility because your like your fertility is a vital sign. You know, while you are in your reproductive years, you know, we want to be for men. We are beautiful men. We, you know, there's, I, I think there's a crisis today with like low testosterone and like low sperm counts and higher spermaglutination where we see lots of different morphologies of the sperm. They're not as healthy as they should be. And I think that the same is true for our women. We want to be optimizing for her menstrual cycle because it is a vital sign. And when you can optimize, like, your, your, your period, like your menstrual cycle is basically a report card. It's like a hormonal report card on how well you've done with managing your stress this month, how well you've done with your food, how well you've done with your sleep, how well you've done with your movement. Cause your period will always, she doesn't lie to you. She's always going to tell you, you know, where you're off, you know, where you need to make corrections in the next cycle. And I think, um, the more women who can, like lean into their menstrual cycle and their reproductive cycle as a vital sign, the better off we will all be to make better, better choices. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a really powerful statement. Like your period uh, approaching that as a report card and really using it as a tool to build more self-awareness about where you're at now with some of your health metrics and where you want to go moving forward um, is that something you do in your practice? Like you, you kind of coach and support women as well on how to like better understand and better read, you know, their cycle and their, in their period and, and all of these things that are transpiring. Yeah, that's the crux of my work. So we have, um, I do group and private coaching and in the group, uh, uh, so the book is called The Betty Body. And then my group is called Hello Betty. So it's just like discovering your own you know, inner Betty. Um, so we do a lot of group uh, coaching in there and we talk about uh, food. We talk about fitness. We talk about the female psyche, what it's like to grow up as a woman in, in this modern world. We talk about the divine feminine and the divine masculine and the marriage between those two energies. Um, yeah. So we have uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff in there. And then I, into, I, I blend that into private coaching as well. Sweet. Yeah. We'll make sure to link all of that too. I'm curious to know, um, just from a curiosity standpoint, your group coaching, is that something that like there's open enrollment at all times or you have different, uh, periods of time where people can get into an eight or 12 week program? Um, it's an open enrollment. So we allow people to join at any point, but in once you enroll, there are certain, uh, streams. So there's like, you know, the nutrition stream and fitness stream. And so some of those will have timelines on them. Super cool. I love that. Very customized approach, which I love now. Um, doc, I know we're running a little low on time, but I did want to, you did, you did mention stress. Um, and I know that's also something you're very passionate about talking about. Uh, would you mind talking a little bit about just like the impact of chronic stress on the body how that can manifest into inflammation and other chronic diseases potentially? Yeah, I use um, stress or chronic low-grade stress and inflammation uh, almost interchangeably because that's the end That's the end game. That's what happens. I think it's important um, to distinguish between good stress and bad stress, right? So, um, you know, hormetic stress or a stress is something like maybe fasting or, you know, a ketogenic diet where there's a macronutrient restriction or exercise or cold therapy, hot therapy. These are all 
uh, temporary acute stresses. So they have like a kind of a high amplitude in terms of like the stress level. If you're doing like I did legs this morning, it's like high amplitude, like difficult, you know, but it's like an hour and it's concentrated and then it's done. Um, these are all very good and they help us adapt, but I will say that transiently, they actually do increase. There's a lot of inflammation that like, for example, you know, ripped apart my glutes today. Right. So now I have to spend time like, you know, recovering and, and repairing them. So there's that use stress, which is really important. And it's important for us to be engaging in these hormetic stressors, uh, regularly so that we can become more resilient so that we can become more, uh, you know, I like to say harder to kill. So we want to, you know, do some of these things that increase our grit, cellular grit. But then there's also what you mentioned, which is this distress, which is this stress that doesn't leave. Uh, it's this chronic low grade stress. So this is, um, and I, I break it down into sort of three main verticals. So we have like the physical, the chemical, and the emotional. So physical long-term low grade stress might be, you know, sitting in an you know, talking to your computer all day long, which is what we all do now. And, you know, from this COVID area, we just all talk on Zoom, right? So sitting at your desk, talking to your computer all day long, uh, a chemical stress might be your diet, right? So if you're eating a standard American diet, uh, if you are not have, getting enough nutrients, uh, if you have toxicities like environmental toxicants, if you have mold, things like that, uh, these are all chemical stressors. Um, and then I would say emotional stressors as well. So maltreatment as a child, you know, things that are still living in your nervous system. We've been talking a little bit about psychedelics and how we can release those things, but these are all examples of chronic low grade stress. And I think that the end game is inflammation. And I believe it was Dr. Mark Hyman uh, who coined the term inflammaging, right? If you, the more inflamed you are, the quicker you age, right? So you are now always activating your innate uh, you know, your, uh, immune system to try and dampen the stress. So you're already diverting energy towards trying to get things under control on a day-to-day -day basis. So you don't have as much energy, you know, your sleep is not going to be, um, as optimal as it could, uh, your body, you may, you may see things in your reproductive system. We've been talking a little bit about menstrual cycles. You may see things in your digestive system. So you may see things like bloating or, you know, distension or just, you know, feeling uncomfortable after you eat. It could be even more severe, like SIBO, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, et cetera. So I think that, um, stress. I think people think about stress and they think of like someone who's like screaming and pulling their hair out and they're red in the face, but that's not what stress is. Stress is, um, you know, not being able to ask for help, feeling like you're alone, feeling hopeless, um, having chronic niggles and niggling pain in your shoulder, um, not having the energy that you used to, it's not normal for you to feel bagged at two o'clock and to need a coffee. Um, and even then, when you do have a coffee, that energy is not yours. Your, that energy came from the coffee. It's not that something that you were in, like that's artificial energy. So mm -hmm. I, th I think it's important um, when we think about long, long-term stress as really, um, and, and it's this umbrella term that can mean a lot of things, but it literally impacts every single system in the body. It upregulates inflammatory pathways. It downregulates mitochondrial ATP production um, and all these other things. So I think um, we've been talking a lot about strategies today, like, you know, getting your menstrual cycle in check and, you know, informed consent before you take a chemical intervention like, you know, oral contraception or managing, you know, old, old trauma that lives in your nervous system. We become more sympathetic. We become more, we have more sympathetic tone, um, in the body where our, our cortisol levels are already always sort of amped up at a level that they shouldn't be. We don't have that normal rise and fall of the circadian rhythm of cortisol where we're feeling, you know, our boss is driving us crazy. Our husband's driving us, our kids are driving us crazy. Like our politicians are driving us crazy. Like all of these things really do affect, um, uh, our ability to deal, to be resilient. And, you know, if there's one thing that this pandemic has taught us is that it, it is a little bit of natural selection. It's a little bit of survival of the fittest. So unfortunately, a lot of the people that we are seeing who've lost, uh, the battle with COVID have had comorbidities like metabolic syndrome. They've had obesity. There's been chronic low levels of inflammation so that the virus is just superseding the immune system's ability to actually quell things down. If it's already activated, then you have this other virus that your immune system has to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, uh, we, that, and that, you know, we see in the States and, uh, this is why there's been the most deaths, um, from COVID in the United States is because the, 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 the society is inherently unhealthy and I know it's taboo and I know people hate it. And it's like, well, we're not going to diet our way out of the pandemic. And I know that, but I would also offer that in addition to, uh, some of the, um, you know, policies that are being presented that we also think about how we can help our, uh, how we can optimize our diet, our fitness, our mindset, so that we can just be more resilient overall. For sure. Yeah, that's well said. You know, I think the last 18 months, at least in America, like, I feel like we had a golden opportunity to really educate people and empower people with taking ownership of their health and teaching them just simple practices, the power of getting outside, connecting to nature, going for a walk, eating more natural foods, getting that vitamin D. But like we didn't take advantage of that opportunity um, because it. I posted something about vitamin D on my Instagram and it got flagged. (laughs) Like, you know, come on guys, like it's vitamin D. (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy. The amount of censorship that's happening. Um, It's unfortunate, but um, it's part of part of, the current climate. So we got to learn to adapt and live with it. Um, Doc, I'm so grateful for you and your generosity and the time. And I just have two more questions that are pretty simple and quick, and then we'll wrap things up. Um, Because it's Thrive University, I'm wondering what your definition of thriving means. Well, it's definitely not survive. <laughs> so surviving is just kind of getting by, making it through the day, making it through the week so that you're at, you know, Friday. Thriving is like every day is Friday. So every day feels like a blessing and there's expansion and it feels open and there's abundance and you are moving towards um uh, you, I would say you're more self-actualized. Like I have sort of three different characters in me at all times. There's like current Stephanie, there's like baby Stephanie, my inner child, who's always like scared of being left and abandoned. And then there's like grandma Stephanie, you know, like the wise lady with wrinkled face. She has a beautiful pendant and, you know, she knows all the things that she knows and I'm moving towards, um, grandma Stephanie. So moving towards my self-actualized, um, most pure self, that's what thrive means to me. I love that. I heard this, I heard this quote that life is about pleasing two people. It's not your parents. It's not your friends. It's the eight-year-old version of yourself and the 80-year-old version of yourself, mm-hmm. making both of those people proud mm-hmm. with the way that you show up in the world. Um, and I think that's kind of what you just mentioned. Now, final question. So theoretically, hypothetically, um, it's your last supper. Okay, I'm curious to know. You get to choose three people. You get to choose three three people. people. They have to be living right now. Three Mm -hmm. people to sit at the dinner table with you. All right. You get to pick their brains. You get to share laughs. You get to share cries, whatever you want. Um, Who are those three people? And then what are you eating on that last dinner? That's what I thought you were going to lead with. I was like, "Mm, food, let's think. Okay, so uh, in terms of food... I would say for my last supper, it would be, uh, I have the slow cooked ribs recipe that is just mm-hmm. divine. So it's like on the, you know, on the stew, we eat those carrots, onions, all that stuff in there, um, bacon. And then I have ribs that stew on the, on the stovetop for like three hours. And I also add cocoa to them. So there's like, it's like chocolate, like wow. there's no, there's no, uh, like it's just cocoa. So there's not, but you still get like the hint of chocolate. It's just divine. I probably have that over, um, if it's my last supper, then I'm probably going to do it with pasta. So yeah, I'm going to put it with some pasta. Um, who I would be sitting with three people. You said, yeah. Hmm. Gosh, this is a good question. I would, they have to be living. They have to be living. Yeah. Okay. So I would say, um, the first person who popped into my head was, uh, Dr. Ioannidis. He's, um, a world renowned epidemiologist, uh, just so smart that you just feel like saying anything is just not worthy of being said. So I'd want to have dinner with him and talk to him about, um, the, pers- the scientific pursuit and how I, I, he's talked a lot of times about how, um, science is, or the, you know, 
people call it, like they talk about evidence base and, you know, he talks about this, like, uh, you know, this deterioration of the quality of scientific inquiry. So I'd love to talk to him about that. Um, other people I'd want to sit with. Gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Maybe Gal Gadot. I love her. Um, when Wonder Woman, um, came out, people were like, oh my gosh, you look so much like her. And I'm like, that's, that's such a compliment and insult to her, but thank you. I'd love to sit with her. And I know that she's, um, filming right now, Cleopatra, uh, who I feel very connected to energetically. So I have always felt very connected to, um, you know, Cleopatra and Isis, who is, uh, not the terrorist group, but, um, she is, uh, like the, the goddess mother. So I'd be really interested to speak to her. And then I think it's Patty Jenkins. Who's the, um, who's the producer, uh, of that movie. Like she also produced uh, wonder woman. So I'd actually want I'd want to sit with both of them and maybe talk some history about Cleopatra. So those are my three. You could just bring Cleopatra. Oh, but she's not. But she's, she's not, not here. That's why I was like, yeah, 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 are you yeah, sure? Okay. She's I got not, you. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I appreciate those thoughtful answers, Dr. Stephanie. And I just want to acknowledge you for everything that you're doing, all of the contributions you're making for really just being uh such a powerful leader in this space for others like myself to look up to and be inspired by. And I know you're impacting so many lives with the work that you're doing. So thank you so much. And if you could just share where people can connect with you, uh, that would be amazing. Sure. Yeah. So you can, uh, my book is called the Betty body. So you can find that if you feel called to learn more about, you know, women's cycles and how we can eat for our cycle, train for our cycle, uh, you know, supplement for our cycle, um, you can find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the places. Um, you can connect with me on Instagram. So I'm at Dr. First Name, Last Name. So Dr. Stephanie Estima on Instagram. And then if you want to learn more about my membership, it's hellobetty.club. Perfect. We'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes. So make sure to check that out then, because again, when you have someone who has the wealth of knowledge that Dr. Stephanie does, you want to make sure to take advantage of that. So if any of the things that we spoke about today resonated with you, make sure to take action. You already know what time it is, fam. It's time to take action on your health and thrive. Peace out. Oh my goodness, Thrive Tribe. I don't know about you, but that conversation with Dr. Stephanie Estima left me absolutely inspired and empowered to take further ownership of every aspect of my health. And if this show impacted you in a positive way, please let Dr. Stephanie and I know on Instagram, tag us in your stories, you can find me at Coach Jeremy 305 And one last thing, fam. If you got value from today's show, it would mean the world if you could leave a review on Apple because this honestly helps so much. It allows our show to reach more people and touch more lives. So by you taking the extra 12 or 16 seconds to leave a review, it genuinely could save a life. So please take action on that, fam. Until next time, I love you so much and you already know what time it is. It's time to leave that five-star review and thrive.